You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hello, my dear listeners. This is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I'm not in Montreal right now. I happen to be in Germany enjoying a good Riesling at the moment because, of course, as you may remember, I don't drink beer. But I'm setting down my glass of wine to let you know about an important event about to unfold, one that I hold dearly. It's called the IVAs, or the Indigenous Voices Awards. Don't know what this is? Well, here's your first teaser from the host of the event, the Dene writer, Richard Van Camp. Hello, bonjour, bonjour, tonse, oki, donate, donate, sankamasi. My friends, my name is Richard Van Camp, and I'm from Fort Smith, Northwest Territories. I'm a proud Tlicho Dene author and storyteller. And I am in Treaty 6 country today, uh, broadcasting from our home with my incredible Star Wars collection, Feast Your Eyes, Cousins. It is a pleasure to be your MC and host today of the 2022 Indigenous Voices Awards online celebration on Indigenous People's Day 2022. Again, that was the Dene writer Richard Van Camp, who will be hosting the event called the IVAs, or the Indigenous Voices Awards. As the title of the event suggests, it's meant to celebrate and confer awards upon some of the leading Indigenous writers in Canada at the moment. I took a few moments to speak to a couple of the shortlisted writers, and even one of the jurors, the fabulous Eden Robinson, whom I caught at the Blue Met Festival in Montreal, while she was being awarded the Blue Metropolis First People's Literary Prize. But I begin this episode with an interview with one of the organizers and founders of the event, Creeb Mati professor and scholar Deanna Rader, and we chatted about the history of the event together. Stick around after that to listen to the absolutely dynamite shortlisted writers and Eden Robinson at the very end of this episode. Here's my interview with Deanna Rader, where I begin with asking her, what are the IVAs? The IVAs, or the Indigenous Voices Awards, were, was crowdfunded in 2017 in reaction to a controversy about a so-called appropriation prize. Mm-hmm. And out of that came a whole groundswell of public members who wanted to contribute towards emerging writers. And I think that's the key thing is the plural, no longer one celebrity at a time who gets to be the best Indigenous writer in Canada, but instead, can we support a generation of emerging Indigenous writers? And this is year five. And if you look at the list of the people who have been finalists and now winners, I think it is a perfect example of the new generation. You know, everybody needs to run out and buy their books. 
Maybe you could riff a little bit on what this does for Indigenous writers. What role does the IVAs serve? While the IVAs are really important, I'm sure some of the authors would have garnered the national attention they've received. However, we know at least five unpublished winners and finalists have gone on to receive book contracts. The most recent being Cody Catano, who is a finalist in unpublished fiction, and now he has a memoir coming out. That effect of getting published is so powerful to any author, but my favorite story is about Francine Morasti, a Cree lawyer and poet. In 2018, in the first year of the Indigenous Voices Awards, we had hoped to publish some of the excerpts or some of the finalists. And in fact, the editor of the Alaska Quarterly Review came to us and pretty much insisted that we publish with his journal, his literary journal. And even despite its name, it's, it has a national reach, the Alaska Quarterly Review. And so of that you know, repertoire of, of writers that we had, one of them was Francie Morasti. Well, in the end, an American anthology of the best Native American writers on the continent picked up her poem and republished her. And so that bounce, you know, the fact that you provide an opportunity and that makes its own opportunities. And that was really exciting to us, something we hope for all of our writers at whatever stage they're at. So I thought we could talk a little bit about the ceremony itself, how the ceremony evolves, and then also talk about one of the favorite moments at one of the ceremonies that you might have had. I am so pleased and honored to have been part of all five of the award ceremonies. The first one was a raucous event at Regina, and I still laugh to think about how much fun we all had. And that included flying in a lot of the winners and finalists, because of course they were from all across Canada and assembling there and the sort of dinners before and the visiting after. It was fantastic. Then year two, we connected it to a conference for the Indigenous Literary Studies Association in Vancouver and we were able to use the beautiful um, longhouse at the University of British Columbia. And it was just elegant and fantastic. And I have to put a plug in here for Penguin Random House Canada, who really helped um, support us to be able to bring in all of these writers. Um, we all stayed at student housing and it was just fantastic. However, COVID hit. And mm. we thought, oh no, how are we going to do this mm. online? How are we going to replicate the excitement? And you know what? Even though we hope one day to come back in person, the last three years have been like a miracle. We ask writers to record themselves and send it to our video technician who puts them all together. We always get an amazing MC. The first year was Smokey Sumac, then last year, Tennille Campbell, this year, Richard Van Camp. And they really do the emceeing, the introductions, 
and then we splice it with the authors themselves reading from their own work. It's only an hour long because, of course, you don't have all night when you're a digital entity. But then people go back and watch them over and over. And I've heard profs talk about using it in their classrooms. And the writers themselves have that moment to be able to show their reading publics, however they contact them through social media. And we just realized what a blessing that has been, even though it's the, the gala we never imagined we would throw at the very beginning. It seems to me that you're leaving quite a legacy with the Ivas. Was that the intention as well? And also, who else was involved in the process of leaving such a legacy? Who are some of the key players involved in putting the Ivas together? I have to make sure that I give a shout out to some of the people I work with, like Sophie McCall, my colleague and friend, and Sarah Henze, also a literature prof in French and Indigenous Studies at SFU, and also Sam McKegney, who was with us the first couple of years. The list could go on, actually, especially if I included the research assistants and the you know amazing, talented supporters like our incredible, long-standing donor, uh, a patron, Pamela Dillon. It has been absolutely a group effort, and every year we have been approaching it as though we are trying to pull off a miracle, you know, and every year the miracle happens and the money gets dispensed. And to be honest, the money doesn't seem to go away. People can sort of top up what we spend each year. And so when we think about the future, we know we have to imagine another way, but we're really enjoying this time to just make opportunities and, do what we can as profs to actually affect the lives of writers that we teach. Think about our responsibilities to the writing community, you know, as literature professors. And so I can't speak too much about the legacy other than I know that even should the Indigenous Voices Awards wrap up right now, this year, we just, or next year, we had one big blowout, let's imagine, I'm just speculating. The writers that have emerged are the legacy. It's not what we've done. It's really how they've stepped up and we're all richer for it. Is there anything that you would do differently in the future or that you would add to the current agenda or program of the IVAs? The one aspect of the IVAs that we have not been wholly successful with is the French version of the awards. We can reach out to French publishers and they send us their emerging writers. We do what we can to spread the word, but we're not a fully bilingual organization. And I wish we had funding or resources for that because I know that is a growing community of writers themselves who need that support and and recognition. But one of the more creative ways that we're trying to navigate through this is that there's already a prize that's being organized by Anorak, the publishing house for unpublished writers. And so we've reached out to them to offer to subsidize that prize. And we're thinking to ourselves, while we would love to be the fully bilingual, for now, let's do what we can and wait to see maybe a bigger vision that where we can meet that need. I mean, I think at this point, that's the 
best we can do, even as we're so grateful for the French authors that have submitted and the French prizes we are able to give. Is there anything you'd like to say to listeners about the forthcoming event for the IVAs? First, everybody in across the nation should zoom in to listen to Richard Van Camp. He is an absolute gem and a natural MC. He was actually the MC for our first in live awards. That's a nice full circle. There's also, I think, writers that people might never have heard of that I think will intrigue, including some writers in Indigenous languages. We've had more applicants in Indigenous languages this time than ever before. And so we have been able to recognize three finalists, and I'm really looking forward to that. Again, that was Deanna Rader. The first shortlisted writer with whom I had the opportunity to speak was Tenille Campbell, a Dene writer and poet from English River First Nation. The title of her book shortlisted for the IVAs is Nidina Zoo which means good medicine. This is Tanil's description of her book. Nidina Zoo is a, I'm not going to say the second part of a collection, but definitely like the older sister of a previous read. It's political and complex, speaking of Indigenous women's bodies and desire, but also leading into more political stance of what it means to be Indigenous woman and to love freely and wildly and if we're allowed that grace, but also what does it mean to wildly love ourselves, especially when we're considered imperfect. And I speak like as a plus size woman, as a fat woman in society, and I find that those are the poems that revolutionize and really reach out to women but also about the relationships that we take in life. This book is a collection of relationships. And I think a lot of people really see themselves in the roles that the point of view goes through from like lover to mother to daughter to auntie. And I feel like that it connects. And this book is basically my diary presented up for the world to devour. <laughs> it's all written in first person. I try and write my truth. I try and make it accessible and approachable. But at the end of the day, these are my stories that's kind of poured out for other people to connect with because I feel what poetry does is connect us and that these poems are things that I've wanted to talk about for years and have been talking about for years. And it opens up discourse both in print and online that I think we desperately need. What I then asked her, is important about this book. Nadine Azu, I feel, touches upon this idea of, I'm, I don't want to say like personal power, but maybe it is personal power. I don't know. I feel like it gives us that space where we need to demand that our voices be heard in whatever forms we want to give. And whether it be a sensual one night stand or whether it be a coffee around the table with all your aunties, that no matter how it's presented, that our thoughts and our opinions and our presence is relevant. And I think that this book gives us that space. What kind of writer is she, I wanted to know. 
as a writer, I find I'm uh, not humble. Um, it's it's <laughs> it's a good thing that I have people around me who are like second readers and third readers, because I'm the kind of writer who goes in and like comes out of this phase of like, wow, you're a genius. Yes. <laughs> There's absolutely no humbleness at the first draft. I'm like, this is perfection. I've written it. And <laughs> it's really taken me a lot to kind of learn to step back and like, let it sit and like, let other eyes take at it and understand that other eyes and other perspectives are important. And so as a writer, I'm very community based not for the first draft, obviously, but for the finesse, for the final point of view, for the community building, I need those readers to come around me to like fine tune this into something. So like before, and I said, I'm up against, I was laughing because I'm not up against anybody. You know, I'm in a very special group with community. And I think that's beautiful. I then asked her how she felt about being shortlisted for this award. Oh, honored. Um, I'll say like First Nations or Indigenous writing circles are small and I know exactly who I'm up against, up against. And <laughs> and I know how brilliant and amazing that their writings are and I know them personally and I'm just humbled to be included in that, especially with this kind of collection because I know it's not for everybody. I know that it's still a discourse that people are uncomfortable with, like the politicalness of a woman's sensuality and power and feminism. And to have it be placed up against such heavy hitters is really an honor and something I'm very grateful for. The other author with whom I had the opportunity to speak is Lisa Boivin of Denanukwe First Nations. I had asked her about her children's book, We Dream Medicine Dreams. And my first question, like the one I posed for Tania, was, what is this book about? It's a book about a little girl and her grandfather. And um, it opens up and she tells him about her animal dreams. And then he explains to her about their uh, Dene knowledge systems and how they're delivered by animals in their dreams. And he encourages her to observe the animals and then gives her teachings about each of the animals. And when he dies, she uses the teachings he gave her to make sense of the world around her and, and heal from the loss. I also knew this book was a departure from what she usually writes, so I had to ask, why write this book? So I don't usually write kids' books. I am a doctoral candidate who's wrapping up uh, her PhD. So this kind of writing is actually really foreign to me, but it's something that I do for healing purposes. I'm also an ethicist. So a lot of the writing uh, that I do are about things that are very stressful, like death and protocol and policy around death, questions of equity and racism and healthcare. So these are the things that I'm normally writing about in my day-to-day -day life. Uh, both of my books are actually about death. I guess it's a way of how I, I heal, um, either through uh, loss of members of my family or also interacting with death on a daily basis professionally. When I wrote this book, I was actually sitting on the Ontario uh, COVID-19 bioethics table, and we were developing triage protocols. And so we had a lot of conversations about ventilators, about people being removed from ventilators. And it was, it was very, very stressful. 
And then I started to process my own grief around the loss of my father, which happened years ago. But he was also removed from care. He was on a ventilator before he died. And so the book is a way, um, certainly the illustrations are a way of processing my father's death. And I use the animal teachings to, to heal when he died. And so, you know, healing is never a, a linear journey, right? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you learn something and then you kind of put it somewhere else and then you kind of move on. And so when I was doing this work uh, developing triage protocols around COVID-19, these animal teachings really, really helped me. So initially, you know, I created and illustrated and, and authored the book to help me heal but also to help other people heal. I mean, healing, healing is something uh, that's very personal, but it's also collective. And you know, there's a lot of loss during COVID. And so listening to family member stories, to patient stories, to clinician stories, there's a lot of powerful narratives. And so I guess I tried to create a more gentle narrative with the book. And of course, I wanted to know, how did she feel when she discovered her book had been shortlisted for one of the prizes? It was an amazing feeling. I'm honored to be included with other Indigenous writers. And my first audience is is um, Indigenous readers. And I guess part of it too, I mean, if I could share something very personal about myself, I was one of those who was taken away. Uh, so I didn't grow up with my culture. I didn't grow up in... Uh, in the land where my ancestors grew up. And I, I met my father later on in his life. And fortunately for me, I had time with him to learn some of these, these teachings from him before he passed on. So to be included with these other uh, knowledgeable, incredible writers, is, it's a great honor. It's an honor just, just to be nominated. And that leads me to the last component of today's episode. And that is my interview with Eden Robinson when I had the opportunity to speak with her very briefly at the Blue Metropolis Literary Festival prior to her going on stage for a joint conversation or interview with Thompson Highway. So as I said, Eden Robinson was one of the jurors for this year's IVAs. And so I asked her about her experience of being a juror. Well, the IVAs are important to me because... The next generation of writers coming up will not have the kind of supports I had when I was an emerging writer. Uh, they won't have the, the kind of extensive publicity that I had. They won't have, you know, they're doing a lot of this on their own. Mm. And anything that gives emerging writers a little boost, anything that gives them something that says that other people believe in their talent is something that I want to support. I know personally, I've when I take time away from my own work to do this kind of thing, that I have a personal investment mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. Is that how you feel? How do you feel about doing this kind of work? Uh, I, I think this is something that you do if you are a part of the community. Yeah. This is something that you do if you feel that you know community should support a community. Um, and, uh, you know, taking time away from my own work is sometimes really good because I can get in my own head and <laughs> 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 you overthink things and you're stuck in a rut and 
um, sometimes taking a bit of time away shakes you out of that rut. There were a series of people who were shortlisted and mm -hmm. people who even didn't make the shortlist. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll talk about the shortlist later. <laughs> um, could you tell me what would you want to say to those who didn't make the shortlist or those who make the shortlist but then don't actually get the award? What would you say to those aspiring writers? Uh, this is the hard part of, um, you know, the, the prize world. Mm. Uh, I have been on shortlists. I have been off shortlists. I have been uh, the runner-up. I have been the winner. And this is not the end of your career. This is not a comment on you personally. This is, you know, this is a moment. And, uh, you know, for the people who are nominated and for the people who do win, um, you know, it can be overwhelming. And the thing to remember, the thing to focus on is what you believe in and what your heart is. But we're, where your heart is leading you. For a complete list of the finalists of the IVAs, check out their website at indigenousvoicesawards.org. And don't forget to tune in to the IVAs on June 21st, 2022. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.